Will the four just men be caught when they deliver their final threat in person? Edgar Wallace, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please consider becoming a supporting member. It helps support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you get a $17 discount. You win, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. You can also purchase our app or shop for t-shirts and other merchandise. Links can be found in the notes to today's episode. And if you have the Classic Tales app, check out your special features for more meditations of Marcus Aurelius. We'd also like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. The Hunchback of Notre Dame is coming along. I'm going to release this in two parts, as a part one and part two, since it runs around 20 hours. So keep an eye open for part one. Please make sure your member status is current, as I will be sending the completed audiobooks out to all current financial supporting members. I'm going to be at the FanX Comic Con in Salt Lake City. I will be on a panel called... The Life-Changing Magic of Embracing Your Inner Nerd. It will be on Saturday the 7th at noon. Apparently I'm a bit of an authority on nerding loud and proud. So if you're in town, drop by. I'd love to see you. And I have stickers. And now for our personal moment. It's been quiet this week. We've kind of adjusted to people going to school and stuff. It's been kind of quiet. Basil wrote his uh, first English assignment in college, and it blew me away. He wrote about when we got our cat, Lygia. It was a super simple story, but my gosh, his vocabulary... I don't know if you listen to John Green and his podcast, The Anthropocene Reviewed. It's really an amazing piece, and he and his brother do a whole bunch of podcasts and books. They're amazing people. But if you listen to John Green, you know what my son Basil sounds like when he talks. Because whenever I hear John Green, I'm like, well, that's my son. Oh, my gosh. And the way he writes is also very similar. It's very smart. It's very succinct. It's really, it was, I I was blown away when I read it. That's really the main thing that that, that jumped out at me this week. was reading Basil's story about Lygia. And um, I don't know... I know where he gets it, because it's just exactly the way that Scylla writes. I'm not a writer, I, I do this, but uh, those two are really kind of on the genius side. It's really exciting to be in their lives. So that's our personal moment. Got pretty personal there for a minute there. Hope that didn't weird anybody out. But there you go. And now, The Four Just Men, Part 3 of 4, by Edgar Wallace. Chapter 7. The Messenger of the Four There was yet another missive to be handed to the doomed minister. 
In the last he had received, there had occurred the sentence, One more warning you shall receive. And so that we may be assured it shall not go astray, our next and last message shall be delivered into your hands by one of us in person. This passage afforded the police more comfort than had any episode since the beginning of the scare. They placed a curious faith in the honesty of the four men. They recognized that these were not ordinary criminals, and that their pledge was inviolable. Indeed, had they thought otherwise, the elaborate precautions that they were taking to ensure the safety of Sir Philip would not have been made. The honesty of the four was their most terrible characteristic. In this instance, it served to raise a faint hope that the men who were setting at defiance the establishment of the law would overreach themselves. The letter conveying this message was the one to which Sir Philip had referred so airily in his conversation with his secretary. It had come by post, bearing the date mark Balaam 1215. The question is, shall we keep you absolutely surrounded, so that these men cannot by any possible chance carry out their threat? asked Superintendent Falmouth in some perplexity. Or shall we apparently relax our vigilance in order to lure one of the four to his destruction? The question was directed to Sir Philip Raymond, as he sat huddled up in the capacious depths of his office chair. "'You want to use me as bait?' he asked sharply. The detective expostulated. "'Not exactly, sir. We want to give these men a chance.' "'I understand perfectly,' said the minister, with some show of irritation. The detective resumed. "'We know now how the infernal machine was smuggled into the house.' On the day on which the outrage was committed, an old member, Mr. Basco, the member for North Torrington, was seen to enter the house. Well? asked Sir Philip in surprise. Mr. Basco was never within a hundred miles of the House of Commons on that date, said the detective quietly. We might never have found it out, for his name did not appear in the division list. We've been working quietly on that House of Commons affair— ever since, and it was only a couple of days ago that we made the discovery. Sir Philip sprang from his chair and nervously paced the floor of his room. They are evidently well acquainted with the conditions of life in England, he asserted rather than asked. Evidently. They've got the lay of the land, and that is one of the dangers of the situation. But, frowned the other, you have told me that there were no dangers, no real dangers. "'There is this danger, sir,' replied the detective, eyeing the minister steadily, and dropping his voice as he spoke. "'Men who are capable of making such disguise are really outside the ordinary run of criminals. I don't know what their game is, but whatever it is, they are playing it thoroughly. One of them is evidently an artist of that sort of thing, and he's the man I'm afraid of today.' Sir Philip's head tossed impatiently. "'I am tired of all this! Tired of it!' And he thrashed the edge of his desk with an open palm. "'Detectives and disguises and masked murderers until the atmosphere is, for all the world, like that of a melodrama!' "'You must have patience for a day or two, said the plain-spoken officer. The four just men were on the nerves of more people than the foreign minister— 
"'We have not decided what is to be our plan for this evening,' he added. "'Do as you like,' said Sir Philip shortly, and then, "'Am I to be allowed to go to the house tonight?' "'No, that is not part of the programme," replied the detective. Sir Philip stood for a moment in thought. "'These arrangements, they are kept in secret, I suppose? "'Absolutely. Who knows of them? "'Yourself, the Commissioner, your Secretary, and myself. "'And no one else? No one. "'There is no danger likely to arise from that source. "'If upon the secrecy of your movements your safety depended, "'it would be plain sailing.' "'Have these arrangements been committed to writing?' asked Sir Philip. "'No, sir. Nothing has been written.' Our plans have been settled upon and communicated verbally. Even the Prime Minister does not know. Sir Philip breathed a sigh of relief. That is all to the good, he said, as the detective rose to go. I must see the Commissioner. I shall be away for less than half an hour. In the meantime, I suggest that you do not leave your room, he said. Sir Philip followed him out to the ante-room, in which sat Hamilton, the secretary. "'I have an uncomfortable feeling,' said Falmouth, as one of his men approached with a long coat, which he proceeded to help the detective into. "'A sort of instinctive feeling this last day or two, that I have been watched and followed, so that I am using a car to convey me from place to place. They can't follow that without attracting some notice.' He dipped his hand into the pocket and brought out a pair of motoring goggles. He laughed somewhat shamefacedly as he adjusted them. "'This is the only disguise I ever adopt, and I may say, Sir Philip,' he added with some regret, "'that this is the first time during my twenty-five years of service that I have ever played the fool like a stage detective.' After Falmouth's departure, the foreign minister returned to his desk. He hated being alone. It frightened him. That there were two score detectives within call did not dispel the feeling of loneliness. The terror of the four was ever with him, and this had so worked upon his nerves that the slightest noise irritated him. He played with the penholder that lay on the desk. He scribbled inconsequently on the blotting pad before him, and was annoyed to find that the scribbling had taken the form of numbers of figure four. Was the bill worth it? Was the sacrifice called for? was the measure of such importance as to justify the risk? These things he asked himself again and again. And then immediately, what sacrifice? What risk? I am taking the consequence too much for granted, he muttered, throwing aside the pen and half turning from the writing table. There is no certainty that they will keep their words. Bah! It is impossible that they should. There was a knock at the door. "'Hello, Superintendent,' said the Foreign Minister, as the knocker entered. "'Back again already?' The detective, vigorously brushing the dust from his moustache with a handkerchief, drew an official-looking blue envelope from his pocket. "'I thought I'd better leave this in your care,' he said, dropping his voice. "'It occurred to me just after I had left. Accidents happen, you know.' The Minister took the document. "'What is it?' he asked. It is something which would mean absolute disaster to me, if by chance it was found in my possession, said the detective, turning to go. What am I to do with it? 
You would greatly oblige me by putting it in your desk until I return. And the detective stepped into the anteroom, closed the door behind him, and acknowledging the salute of the plainclothes officer who guarded the outer door, passed to the motor car that awaited him. Sir Philip looked at the envelope with a puzzled frown. It bore a superscription, Confidential, and the address, Department A, CID, Scotland Yard. Some confidential report, thought Sir Philip, and an angry doubt as to the possibility of it containing particulars of the police arrangements for his safety filled his mind. He had hit by accident upon the truth had he but known. The envelope contained those particulars. He placed the letter in a drawer of his desk and drew some papers towards him. They were copies of the bill, for the passage of which he was daring so much. It was not a long document. The clauses were few in number. The objects, briefly described in the preamble, were tersely defined. There was no fear of this bill failing to pass on the morrow. The government's majority was assured. Men had been brought back to town. Stragglers had been whipped in. Prayers and threats alike had assisted in concentrating the rapidly dwindling strength of the administration on this one effort of legislation. And what the frantic entreaties of the whips had failed to secure, curiosity had accomplished, for members of both parties were hurrying to town to be present at a scene which might perhaps be history, and, as many feared, tragedy. As Sir Philip conned the paper, he mechanically formed in his mind the line of attack, for, tragedy or no, the bill struck at too many interests in the house to allow of its passage without a stormy debate. He was a master of dialectics, a brilliant casuist, a coiner of phrases that stuck and stung. There was nothing for him to fear in the debate. If only... It hurt him to think of the four just men. Not so much because they threatened his life, he had gone past that, but the mere thought that there had come a new factor into his calculations, a new and terrifying force, that could not be argued down or brushed aside with an acid jest, nor intrigued against, nor adjusted by any parliamentary method. He did not think of compromise. The possibility of making terms with his enemy never once entered his head. I'll go through with it, he cried. Not once, but a score of times. I'll go through with it. And now, as the moment grew nearer to hand, his determination to try conclusions with this new world force grew stronger than ever. The telephone at his elbow purred. He was sitting at his desk with his head on his hands, and he took the receiver. The voice of his house steward reminded him that he had arranged to give instructions for the closing of the house in Portland Place. For two or three days, or until this terror had subsided, he intended his house should be empty. He would not risk the lives of his servants. If the four intended to carry out their plan, they would run no risks of failure. And if the method they employed were a bomb, then, to make assurance doubly sure, an explosion at Downing Street might well synchronize with an outrage at Portland Place. He had finished his talk, and was replacing the receiver when a knock at the door heralded the entry of the detective. He looked anxiously at the minister. "'Nobody been, sir?' he asked. 
Sir Philip smiled. If by that you mean have the four delivered their ultimatum in person, I can comfort your mind. They have not. The detective's face was evidence of his relief. Thank heaven, he said fervently. I had an awful dread that whilst I was away, something would happen. But I have news for you, sir. Indeed. Yes, sir. The Commissioner has received a long cable from America. Since the two murders in that country, one of Pinkerton's men has been engaged in collecting data. For years he has been piecing together the scrappy evidence he has been able to secure, and this is his cablegram. The detective drew a paper from his pocket, and spreading it on the desk, read, Pinkerton, Chicago, to Commissioner of Police, Scotland Yard, London. Warn Raymond that the four do not go outside their promise. If they have threatened to kill in a certain manner, at a certain time, they will be punctual. We have proof of this characteristic. After Anderson's death, small memorandum book was discovered outside window of room, evidently dropped. Book was empty, save for three pages, which were filled with neatly written memoranda, headed Six Methods of Execution. It was initialed C, third letter in alphabet. Warn Raymond against following, drinking coffee in any form, opening letters or parcels, using soap that has not been manufactured under eye of trustworthy agent, sitting in any room other than that occupied day and night by police officer. Examine his bedroom. See if there is any method by which heavy gases can be introduced. We are sending two men by Lucania to watch. The detective finished reading. Watch was not the last word in the original message, as he knew. There had been an ominous postscript. Afraid they will arrive too late. Then you think, asked the statesman, that your danger lies in doing one of the things that Pinkerton warns us against, replied the detective. There is no fear that the American police are talking idly. They have based their warning on some sure knowledge, and that is why I regard their cable as important. There was a sharp rap on the panel of the door, and without waiting for invitation, the private secretary walked into the room, excitedly waving a newspaper. Look at this, he cried. Read this. The four have admitted their failure. What? shouted the detective, reaching for the journal. What does this mean? asked Sir Philip sharply. Only this, sir. These beggars, it appears, have actually written an article on their mission. In what newspaper? The megaphone. It seems when they recaptured Terry, the editor asked the masked man to write him an article about himself, and they've done it. And it's here, and they've admitted defeat, and—and— and... The detective had seized the paper and broke in upon the incoherent secretary's speech. The creed of the four just men, he read. Where is their confession of failure? Halfway down the column, I have marked the passage here and the young man pointed with a trembling finger to a paragraph. "'We leave nothing to chance,' read the detective. "'If the slightest hitch occurs, if the least detail of our plan miscarries, we acknowledge defeat. So assured are we that our presence on earth is necessary for the carrying out of a great plan. So certain are we that we are the indispensable instruments of a divine providence that we dare not— for the sake of our very cause, accept unnecessary risks. 
It is essential, therefore, that the various preliminaries to every execution should be carried out to the full. As an example, it will be necessary for us to deliver our final warning to Sir Philip Raymond, and to add a point to this warning, it is by our code essential that that should be handed to the minister by one of us in person. All arrangements have been made to carry this portion of our programme into effect, but such are the extraordinary exigencies of our system that unless this warning can be handed to Sir Philip in accordance with our promise and before eight o'clock this evening, our arrangements fall to the ground and the execution we have planned must be forgone. The detective stopped reading with disappointment visible on every line of his face. "'I thought, sir, by the way you were carrying on, that you had discovered something new. I've read all this. A copy of the article was sent to the yard as soon as it was received.' The secretary thumped the desk impatiently. "'But don't you see?' he cried. "'Didn't you understand that there is no longer any need to guard Sir Philip?' "'that there is no reason to use him as a bait, "'or, in fact, to do anything, "'if we are to believe these men. "'Look at the time!' "'The detective's hand flew to his pocket. "'He drew out his watch, "'looked at the dial, and whistled. "'Half past eight, by God!' "'He muttered in astonishment, "'and the three stood in surprised silence. "'Sir Philip broke the silence. "'Is it a ruse to take us off our guard?' "'He said hoarsely. "'I don't think so,' replied the detective slowly. "'I feel sure that it is not, nor shall I relax my watch, "'but I am a believer in the honesty of these men. "'I don't know why I should say this, "'for I have been dealing with criminals for the past twenty-five years, "'and never once have I put an ounce of faith in the word of the best of them. "'But somehow I can't disbelieve these men.' If they have failed to deliver their message, they will not trouble us again. Ramon paced his room with quick, nervous steps. I wish I could believe that, he muttered. I wish I had your faith. A tap on the door panel. An urgent telegram for Sir Philip, said a grey-haired attendant. The minister stretched out his hand, but the detective was before him. Remember Pinkerton's wire, sir, he said. And ripped open the brown envelope. "'Just received a telegram handed in at Charing Cross, 7.52. Begins. We have delivered our last message to the Foreign Secretary. Signed, 4. Ends. Is this true? Editor, Megaphone.' "'What does this mean?' asked Falmouth in bewilderment, when he had finished reading. "'It means, my dear Mr. Falmouth,' replied Sir Philip testily, that your noble four are liars and braggarts as well as murderers, and it means at the same time, I hope, an end to your ridiculous faith in their honesty. The detective made no answer, but his face was clouded as he bit his lips in perplexity. Nobody came after I left, he asked. Nobody. You have seen no person besides your secretary and myself? "'Absolutely nobody has spoken to me "'or approached within a dozen yards of me,' "'Raymond answered shortly. "'Falmouth shook his head despairingly. "'Well, I... "'Where are we?' he asked, "'speaking more to himself than to anybody in the room, 
and moved towards the door. Then it was that Sir Philip remembered the package left in his charge. You had better take your precious documents, he said, opening his drawer and throwing the package left in his charge onto the table. The detective looked puzzled. What is this? he asked, picking up the envelope. I'm afraid the shock of finding yourself deceived in your estimate of my persecutors has dazed you, said Sir Philip, and added pointedly, I must ask the commissioner to send an officer who has a better appreciation of the criminal mind, and a less childlike faith in the honour of murderers. As to that, sir, said Falmouth, unmoved by the outburst, you must do as you think best. I have discharged my duty to my own satisfaction, and I have no more critical taskmaster than myself. But what I am more anxious to hear is exactly what you mean by saying that I handed any papers into your care. The foreign secretary glared across the table at the imperturbable police officer. I am referring, sir, he said harshly, to the packet which you returned to leave in my charge. The detective stared. I did not return, he said in a strained voice. I have left no papers in your hands. He picked up the package from the table, tore it open, and disclosed yet another envelope. As he caught sight of the grey-green cover, he gave a sharp cry. This is the message of the four, said Falmouth. The foreign secretary staggered back a pace, white to the lips. And the man who delivered it, he gasped, was one of the four just men, said the detective grimly. They have kept their promise. He took a quick step to the door, passed through into the anteroom, and beckoned the plainclothes officer who stood on guard at the outer door. Do you remember my going out? he asked. Yes, sir. Both times. Both times, eh? said Falmouth bitterly. And how did I look the second time? His subordinate was bewildered at the form the question took. As usual, sir, he stammered. How was I dressed? The constable considered. In your long dust coat. I wore my goggles, I suppose. Yes, sir. Oh, I thought so, muttered Falmouth savagely and raced down the broad marble stairs that led to the entrance hall. There were four men on duty who saluted him as he approached. "'Do you remember my going out?' he asked of the sergeant in charge. "'Yes, sir, both times,' the officer replied. "'Damn your both times!' snapped Falmouth. "'How long had I been gone the first time before I returned?' Five minutes, sir,' was the astonished officer's reply. "'They just gave themselves time to do it,' muttered Falmouth, and then aloud, did I return in my car? Yes, sir. Ah! Hope sprang into the detective's breast. Did you notice the number? He asked, almost fearful to hear the reply. Yes. The detective could have hugged the stolid officer. Could? What was it? A-17164. The detective made a rapid note of the number. Jackson! He called, and one of the men in mufti stepped forward and saluted. Go to the yard! Find out the registered owner of this car. When you have found this, go to the owner. Ask him to explain his movements. If necessary, take him into custody. 
Falmouth retraced his steps to Sir Philip's study. He found the statesman still agitatedly walking up and down the room, the secretary nervously drumming his fingers on the table, and the letter still unopened. "'As I thought,' explained Falmouth, "'the man you saw was one of the four impersonating me. He chose his time admirably. My own men were deceived. They managed to get a car exactly similar in build and colour to mine, and watching their opportunity, they drove to Downing Street a few minutes after I had left.' "'There is one last chance of our catching him. "'Luckily, the sergeant on duty noticed the number of the car, "'and we might be able to trace him through that. "'Hello!' "'An attendant stood at the door. "'Would the superintendent see Detective Jackson?' Falmouth found him waiting in the hall below. "'I beg your pardon, sir,' said Jackson, saluting. "'But is there not some mistake in this number?' "'Why?' asked the detective sharply. "'Because—' said the man. A-17164 is the number of your own car. Chapter 8 The Pocket Book The final warning was brief and to the point. We allow you until tomorrow evening to reconsider your position in the matter of the alien's extradition bill. If by six o'clock... No announcement is made in the afternoon papers of your withdrawing this measure. We shall have no other course to pursue but to fulfil our promise. You will die at eight in the evening. We append for your enlightenment a concise table of the secret police arrangements made for your safety tomorrow. Farewell. Signed, Four Just Men. Sir Philip read this over without a tremor. He read, too, the slip of paper on which was written, in the strange foreign hand, the details that the police had not dared to put into writing. "'There is a leakage somewhere,' he said, and the two anxious watchers saw that the face of their charge was grey and drawn. "'These details were known only to four, said the detective quietly and I'll stake my life that it was neither the Commissioner nor myself. "'Nor I,' said the private secretary emphatically. Sir Philip shrugged his shoulders with a weary laugh. "'What does it matter? They know,' he exclaimed. "'By what uncanny method they learnt the secret I neither know nor care. The question is, can I be adequately protected to-morrow night at eight o'clock?' Falmouth shut his teeth. "'Either you'll come out of it alive, or by the Lord they'll kill too,' he said, and there was a gleam in his eye that spoke for his determination. The news that yet another letter had reached the great statesman was on the streets at ten o'clock that night. It circulated through the clubs and theatres, and between the acts grave-faced men stood in the vestibules discussing Raymond's danger. The House of Commons was seething with excitement. In the hope that the minister would come down, a strong house had gathered. But the members were disappointed, for it was evident soon after the dinner recess that Sir Philip had no intention of showing himself that night. "'Might I ask the Right Honourable the Prime Minister whether it is the intention of His Majesty's Government to proceed with the Aliens' Extradition Political Offences Bill?' asked the Radical Member for West Deptford. 
and whether he has not considered, in view of the extraordinary conditions that this bill has called into life, the advisability of postponing the introduction of this measure? The question was greeted with a chorus of hear, hears, and the Prime Minister rose slowly and turned an amused glance in the direction of the questioner. I know of no circumstance that is likely to prevent my right honourable friend, who is unfortunately not in his place tonight, from moving the second reading of the bill tomorrow, he said, and sat down. What the devil is he grinning at? grumbled West Deptford to a neighbour. He's deuced uncomfortable, is J.K., said the other wisely. Deuced uncomfortable. A man in the cabinet was telling me today that old J.K. has been feeling deuced uncomfortable. You mark my words, he said, this four just men business is making the premier deuced uncomfortable. And the honourable member subsided to allow West Deptford to digest his neighbour's profundities. I've done my best to persuade Raymond to drop the bill, the premier was saying, but he is adamant and the pitiable thing is he believes in his heart of hearts that these fellows intend keeping faith. It is monstrous, said the colonial secretary hotly. It is inconceivable that such a state of affairs can last. Why, it strikes at the root of everything. It unbalances every adjustment of civilization. It is a poetical idea, said the phlegmatic premier, and the standpoint of the four is quite a logical one. Think of the enormous power for good or evil often vested in one man, a capitalist controlling the markets of the world, a speculator cornering cotton or wheat, whilst mills stand idle and people starve, tyrants and despots with the destinies of nations between their thumb and finger, and then think of the four men, known to none, vague shadowy figures, stalking tragically through the world, condemning and executing the capitalist, the corner-maker, the tyrant, evil forces all and all beyond reach of the law. We have said of these people, such of us that are touched with mysticism, that God would judge them. Here are men arrogating to themselves the divine right of superior judgment. If we catch them, they will end their lives unpicturesquely, in a matter-of-fact, commonplace manner, in a little shed in Pentonville jail." and the world will never realise how great are the artists who perish. "'But Raymond!' the Premier smiled. "'Here, I think, these men have just overreached themselves. Had they been content to slay first and explain their mission afterwards, I have little doubt that Raymond would have died. But they have warned and warned and exposed their hand a dozen times over. I know nothing of the arrangements that are being made by the police— but I should imagine that by tomorrow night it will be as difficult to get within a dozen yards of Raymond as it would be for a Siberian prisoner to dine with the Tsar. Is there no possibility of Raymond withdrawing the bill? asked the colonies. The Premier shook his head. Absolutely none, he said. The rising of a member of the opposition front bench at that moment, to move an amendment to a clause under discussion, cut short the conversation. The house rapidly emptied when it became generally known that Raymond did not intend appearing, and the members gathered in the smoking-room and lobby to speculate upon the matter which was uppermost in their minds. In the vicinity of Palace Yard a great crowd had gathered, as in London crowds will gather, 
on the off chance of catching a glimpse of the man whose name was in every mouth. Street vendors sold his portrait. Frowsy men purveying the real life and adventures of the four just men did a roaring trade, and itinerant street singers, introducing extemporized versions into their repertoire, declaimed the courage of that statesman bold, who dared for to resist the threats of coward alien and deadly anarchist. There was praise in these poor lyrics for Sir Philip, who was trying to prevent the foreigner from taking the bread out of the mouths of honest working men, the humor of which appealed greatly to Manfred, who, with Poicard, had driven to the Westminster end of the embankment. Having dismissed their cab, they were walking to Whitehall. I think the verse about the deadly foreign anarchist taking the bread out of the mouth of the homemade variety is distinctly good, chuckled Manfred. Both men were in evening dress, and Poicard wore in his buttonhole the silken button of the Chevalier of the Légion d'Honneur. Manfred continued, I doubt whether London has had such a sensation since when. Poicard's grim smile caught the other's eye and he smiled in sympathy. "'Well, I asked the same question of the maître d'hôtel,' he said slowly, like a man loath to share a joke. "'He compared the agitation to the atrocious East End murders.' Manfred stopped dead, and looked with horror on his companion. "'Great heavens!' he exclaimed in distress. "'It never occurred to me that we should be compared with him.' They resumed their walk. "'It is part of the eternal bathos,' said Poicard serenely. "'Even the Kinsey taught the English nothing. The God of Justice has but one interpreter here, and he lives in a public house in Lancashire, and is an expert and dexterous discipline of the lamented Marwood, whose system he has improved upon.' They were traversing that portion of Whitehall from which Scotland Yard runs. A man, slouching along with bent head, and his hands thrust deep in the pockets of his tattered coat, gave them a swift sidelong glance, stopped when they had passed, and looked after them. Then he turned and quickened his shuffle on their trail. A press of people and a seeming ceaseless string of traffic at the corner of Cockspur Street brought Manfred and Poicard to a standstill waiting for an opportunity to cross the road. They were subjected to a little jostling, as the knot of waiting people thickened, but eventually they crossed, and walked towards St. Martin's Lane. The comparison which Boicard had quoted still rankled with Manfred. "'There will be people at His Majesty's tonight,' he said, applauding Brutus, as he asks, "'What villain touched his body and not for justice?' You will not find a serious student of history, or any commonplace man of intelligence, for the matter of that, who, if you asked, would it not have been God's blessing for the world if Bonaparte had been assassinated on his return from Egypt, would not answer without hesitation, yes. But we, we are murderers. They would not have erected a statue of Napoleon's assassin, said Poicard easily, any more than they would have enshrined Felton who slew a profligate and debauched minister of Charles I. Posterity may do us justice, he spoke half mockingly. For myself, I am satisfied with the approval of my conscience. He threw away the cigar he was smoking, 
and put his hand to the inside pocket of his coat to find another. He withdrew his hand without the cigar and whistled a passing cab. Manfred looked at him in surprise. What's the matter? I thought you said you would walk. Nevertheless, he entered the hansom and Poicard followed, giving his direction through the trap. Baker Street Station. The cab was rattling through Shaftesbury Avenue before Poicard gave an explanation. I have been robbed, he said, sinking his voice. My watch is gone, but that does not matter. The pocketbook with the notes I made for the guidance of Terry has gone, and that matters a great deal. It may have been a common thief, said Manfred. He took the watch. Placard was feeling his pockets rapidly. Nothing else has gone, he said. It may have been, as you say, a pickpocket. We will be content with the watch, and we will drop the notebook down the nearest drain. But it may be a police agent. Was there anything in it to identify you? asked Manfred in a troubled tone. Nothing, was the prompt reply. But unless the police are blind, they would understand the calculations and the plans. It may not come to their hands at all, but if it does, and the thief can recognize us, we are in a fix. The cab drew up at the down station at Baker Street, and the two men alighted. I shall go east, said Poicard. We will meet in the morning. By that time I shall have learnt whether the book has reached Scotland Yard. Good night. And with no other farewell than this, the two men parted. If Billy Marks had not had a drop of drink, he would have been perfectly satisfied with his night's work. Filled, however, with that false liquid confidence that leads so many good men astray, Billy thought it would be a sin to neglect the opportunities that the gods had shown him. The excitement engendered by the threats of the four just men had brought all suburban London to Westminster, and on the Surrey side of the bridge Billy found hundreds of patient suburbanites waiting for conveyance to Streatham, Camberwell, Clapham, and Greenwich. So the night being comparatively young, Billy decided to work the trams. He touched a purse from a stout old lady in black, a Waterbury watch from a gentleman in a top hat, a small hand mirror from a dainty bag, and decided to conclude his operations with the exploration of a superior young lady's pocket. Billy's search was successful. A purse and a lace handkerchief rewarded him, and he made arrangements for a modest retirement. Then it was that a gentle voice breathed into his ear. Hello, Billy. He knew the voice, and felt momentarily unwell. "'Hello, Mr. Howard!' he exclaimed with feigned joy. "'How are you, sir? Fancy meeting you!' "'Where are you going, Billy?' asked the welcome Mr. Howard, taking Billy's arm affectionately. "'Home!' said the virtuous Billy. "'Home it is,' said Mr. Howard, leading the unwilling Billy from the crowd. "'Home, sweet home it is, Billy!' He called another young man, with whom he seemed to be acquainted. "'Go on that car, porter, and see who has lost anything. If you can find anyone, bring them along.' And the other young man obeyed. "'And now,' said Mr. Howard, still holding Billy's arm affectionately, "'tell me how the world has been using you.' "'Look here, Mr. Howard,' said Billy earnestly. "'What's the game? Where are you taking me?' The game is the old game, 
said Mr. Howard sadly. The same old game, Bill, and I'm taking you to the same old sweet spot. You've made a mistake this time, Governor, cried Bill fiercely, and there was a slight clink. Permit me, Billy, said Mr. Howard, stooping quickly and picking up the purse Billy had dropped. At the police station, the sergeant behind the charge desk pretended to be greatly overjoyed at Billy's arrival, and the jailer, who put Billy into a steel-barred dock and passed his hands through cunning pockets, greeted him as a friend. "'Gold watch, half a chain, gold, three purses, two handkerchiefs, and a red Morocco pocketbook,' reported the jailer. The sergeant nodded approvingly. "'Quite a good day's work, William,' he said. "'What shall I get this time?' inquired the prisoner, and Mr. Howard, a plainclothes officer engaged in filling in particulars of the charge, opined nine moons. "'Go on!' exclaimed Mr. Billy Marks in consternation. "'Fact,' said the sergeant. "'You're a rogue and a vagabond, Billy. You're a petty larcenist, and you're for the sessions this time. Number eight. This latter was addressed to the jailer, who bore Billy off to the cells, protesting vigorously against a police force that could only tumble to poor blokes, and couldn't get a touch on sanguinary murderers like the four just men. "'What do we pay rates and taxes for?' indignantly demanded Billy through the grating of his cell. "'Fat lot you'll ever pay, Billy,' said the jailer, putting the double lock on the door. In the charge office, Mr. Howard and the sergeant were examining the stolen property, and three owners, discovered by P.C. Porter, were laying claim to their own. That disposes of all the articles except the gold watch and the pocketbook, said the sergeant after the claimants had gone. Gold watch. Elgin Half Hunter, N0502902020. Pocketbook containing no papers, no card, no address, and only three pages of writing. What this means, I don't know. The sergeant handed the book to Howard. The page that puzzled the policeman contained simply a list of streets. Against each street was scrawled a cabalistic character. Looks like the diary of a paper chase, said Mr. Howard. What on earth are the other pages? They turned the leaf. This was filled with figures. Hmm, said the disappointed sergeant, and again turned over a leaf. The contents of this page was understandable and readable, although evidently written in a hurry, as though it had been taken down at dictation. The chap who wrote this must have had a train to catch, said the facetious Mr. Howard, pointing to the abbreviations. We'll not leave D.S. except for H.S. We'll drive to H.S. in M.C. Four dummy broughams first. 8.30. At 2, P.R.V. Traff Divited Embank, 80 S.P.L.S. Inside, D.S., one each room, three each core, six basement, six R.F. All doors wide open allow each off see another. All SPLs will carry rever. Nobody except F and H to approach R. In HSE, probably house, strange gal fixed with SPL. All press vouched for. 200 SPL in COR. If neck battalion guards at disposal. The policeman read this over slowly. Now what the devil does that mean? 
asked the sergeant helplessly. It was at that precise moment that Constable Howard earned his promotion. Let me have that book for ten minutes, he said excitedly. The sergeant handed the book over with wondering stare. I think I can find an owner for this, said Howard, his hand trembling as he took the book, and ramming his hat on his head, he ran out into the street. He did not stop running until he reached the main road, and finding a cab, he sprang in with a hurried order to the driver. Whitehall, and drive like blazes, he called, and in a few minutes he was explaining his errand to the inspector in charge of the cordon that guarded the entrance of Downing Street. Constable Howard, 946L Reserve, he introduced himself. I have a very important message for Superintendent Falmouth. That officer, looking tired and beaten, listened to the policeman's story. It looks to me, went on Howard breathlessly, as though this has something to do with your case, sir. D.S. is Downing Street, and— He produced the book, and Falmouth snatched at it. He read a few words, and then gave a triumphant cry. "'Our secret instructions!' he cried, and catching the constable by the arm, he drew him to the entrance hall. "'Is my car outside?' he asked, and in response to a whistle, a car drew up. "'Jump in, Howard,' said the detective, and the car slipped into Whitehall. "'Who's the thief?' asked the senior. "'Billy Marks, sir,' replied Howard. "'You may not know him, but down at Lambeth he is a well-known character.' "'Oh, yes,' Falmouth hastened to correct. "'I know Billy very well indeed. We'll see what he has to say.' The car drew up at the police station, and the two men jumped out. The sergeant rose to his feet as he recognized the famous Falmouth, and saluted. "'I want to see prisoner Marks,' said Falmouth shortly, and Billy— roused from his sleep, came blinking into the charge office. "'Now, Billy,' said the detective, "'I've got a few words to say to you.' "'Why, it's Mr. Falmouth,' said the astonished Billy, and something like fear shaded his face. "'I wasn't in that Oxton affair, so help me.' "'Make your mind easy, Billy. I don't want you for anything, and if you'll answer my questions truthfully, you may get off the present charge and get a reward into the bargain.' Billy was suspicious. "'I'm not going to give anybody away, if that's what you mean,' he said sullenly. "'Nor that either,' said the detective impatiently. "'I want to know where you found this pocketbook,' and he held it up. Billy grinned. "'Found it lying on the pavement,' he lied. "'I want the truth!' thundered Falmouth. "'Well,' said Billy sulkily, "'I pinched it. From whom?' I didn't stop to ask him his name, was an impudent reply. The detective breathed deeply. Now look here, he said, lowering his voice. You've heard about the four just men. Billy nodded, opening his eyes in amazement at the question. Well, exclaimed Falmouth impressively, the man to whom this pocketbook belongs is one of them. What? cried Billy. For his capture, there is a reward of a thousand pounds offered. If your description leads to his arrest, that thousand pounds is yours. Marx stood paralyzed at the thought. A thousand? <laughs> a thousand? He muttered in a dazed fashion. And I might just as easily have caught him. Come, come, cried the detective sharply. You may catch him yet. Tell us what he looked like. Billy knitted his brows in thought. 
He looked like a gentleman, he said, trying to recall from the chaos of his mind a picture of his victim. He had a white waistcoat, a white shirt, nice patent shoes, but his face, his face, demanded the detective. His face, cried Billy indignantly. How do I know what it looked like? I don't look a chap in the face when I'm pinching his watch, do I? Chapter 9 The Cupidity of Marks You cursed dolt! You infernal fool! stormed the detective, catching Billy by the collar and shaking him like a rat. Do you mean to tell me that you had one of the four just men in your hand and did not even take the trouble to look at him? Billy wrenched himself free. You leave me alone, he said defiantly. How was I to know it was one of the four just men, and how do you know it was? He added with a cunning twist of his face. Billy's mind was beginning to work rapidly. He saw in this staggering statement of the detective a chance of making capital out of the position, which to within a few minutes he had regarded as singularly unfortunate. I did get a, a bit of a glance at him, he said. They, them, they, said the detective quickly. How many were there? Never mind, said Billy sulkily. He felt the strength of his position. Billy, said the detective earnestly. I mean business. If you know anything, you've got to tell us. Oh, cried the prisoner in defiance. Got to, have I? Well, I don't know the law as well as you. You can't make a chap speak if he don't want. You can't. The detective signaled the other police officers to retire, and when they were out of earshot, he dropped his voice and said, Harry Moss came out last week. Billy flushed and lowered his eyes. I don't know no Harry Moss, he muttered doggedly. Harry Moss came out last week, continued the detective shortly, after doing three years for robbery with violence. Three years and ten lashes. I don't know anything about it, said Marks in the same tone. He got clean away, and the police had no clues, the detective went on remorselessly. And they might not have caught him to this day. Only, only from information received, they took him one night out of his bed in Lehman Street. Billy licked his dry lips, but did not speak. Harry Moss would like to know who he owes his three stretched to, and the ten. Men who've had the cat have a long memory, Billy. That's not playing the game, Mr. Falmouth, cried Billy thickly. I, I was a bit hard up, and Harry Moss wasn't a pal of mine, and the police wanted to find out, and the police want to find out now, said Falmouth. Billy Marks made no reply for a moment. "'I'll tell you all there is to be told,' he said at last, and cleared his throat. The detective stopped him. "'Not here,' he said. Then turning to the officer in charge, "'Sergeant, you may release this man on bail. I will stand sponsor.' The humorous side of this appealed to Billy, at least, for he grinned sheepishly and recovered his former spirits. First time I've been bailed out by the police,' <laughs> he remarked facetiously. The motor-car bore the detective and his charge to Scotland Yard, and in Superintendent Falmouth's office, 
Billy prepared to unburden himself. "'Before you begin,' said the officer, "'I want to warn you that you must be as brief as possible. Every minute is precious.' So Billy told his story. In spite of the warning, there were embellishments, to which the detective was forced to listen impatiently. At last the pickpocket reached the point. "'There was two of them, one a tall chap and one not so tall. I heard one say, "'My dear George,' the little one said that, "'the one I took the ticker from and the pocketbook. "'Was there anything in that notebook?' Billy asked suddenly. "'Go on,' said the detective. "'Well,' resumed Billy, "'I followed them up to the end of the street, "'and they was wanting to cross towards Charing Cross Road "'when I lifted the clock, you understand.' "'What time was this? "'Half-past ten? "'Oh, it might have been eleven. "'And you did not see their faces?' "'The thief shook his head emphatically. "'If I never get up from where I'm sitting, "'I didn't, Mr. Falmouth,' he said earnestly. "'The detective rose with a sigh. "'I'm afraid you're not much use to me, Billy,' he said ruefully. "'Did you notice whether they wore beards, "'or were they clean-shaven, or—' "'Billy shook his head mournfully.' "'I could easily tell you a lie, Mr. Falmouth,' he said frankly, "'and I could easily pitch a tale that would take you in, "'but I'm playing it square with you.' "'The detective recognized the sincerity of the man, and nodded. "'You've done your best, Billy,' he said, "'and then, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. "'You are the only man in the world who has ever seen one of the four just men, "'and lived to tell the story.' Now, although you cannot remember his face, perhaps if you met him again in the street, you would know him. There may be some little trick of walking, some habit of holding the hands that you cannot recall now. But if you saw again, you would recognize. I shall therefore take upon myself the responsibility of releasing you from custody until the day after tomorrow. I want you to find this man you robbed. Here is a sovereign. Go home. "'Get little sleep, turn out as early as you can, and go west.' "'The detective went to his desk and wrote a dozen words on a card. "'Take this. If you see the man or his companion, follow them. "'Show this card to the first policeman you meet, point out the man, "'and you'll go to bed a thousand pounds richer than when you woke.' "'Billy took the card. "'If you want me at any time,' "'You will find somebody here who will know where I am. "'Good night.' "'And Billy passed into the street, "'his brain in a whirl, "'and a warrant written on a visiting card "'in his waistcoat pocket. "'The morning that was to witness great events "'broke bright and clear over London. "'Manfred, who, contrary to his usual custom, "'had spent the night at the workshop in Carnaby Street, watched the dawn from the flat roof of the building. He lay face downwards, a rug spread beneath him, his head resting on his hands. Dawn, with its white, pitiless light, showed his strong face, seamed and haggard. The white streaks in his trim beard were accentuated in the light of morning. He looked tired and disheartened, so unlike his usual self, that Gonzales, who crept up through the trap just before the sun rose, was as near alarmed as it was possible for that phlegmatic man to be. He touched him on the arm, and Manfred started, 
What is the matter? asked Leon softly. Manfred's smile and shake of head did not reassure the questioner. Is it Poicard and the thief? Yes, nodded Manfred. Then, speaking aloud, he asked, Have you ever felt over any of our cases as you feel in this? They spoke in such low tones as almost to approach whispering. Gonzalez stared ahead thoughtfully. Yes, he admitted. Once, the woman at Warsaw. You remember how easy it all seemed, and how circumstance after circumstance thwarted us, till I began to feel, as I feel now, that we should fail. No, 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 said Manfred fiercely. There must be no talk of failure, Leon. No thought of it. He crawled to the trap-door and lowered himself into the corridor, and Gonzalez followed. Terry? he asked. Asleep. They were entering the studio, and Manfred had his hand on the door handle when a footstep sounded on the bottom floor. Who's there? cried Manfred, and a soft whistle from below sent him flying downstairs. Poicard! he cried. Poicard it was, unshaven, dusty, weary. Well? Manfred's ejaculation was almost brutal in its bluntness. Let us go upstairs said Poicard shortly. The three men ascended the dusty stairway, not a word being spoken, until they had reached the small living room. Then Poicard spoke. The very stars in their courses are fighting against us, he said, throwing himself into the only comfortable chair in the room and flinging his hat into a corner. The man who stole my pocketbook has been arrested by the police. He is a well-known criminal of a sneak-thief order and unfortunately he has been under observation during the evening. The pocketbook was found in his possession, and all might have been well, but an unusually smart police officer associated the contents with us. After I had left you, I went home and changed, then made my way to Downing Street. I was one of the curious crowd that stood watching the guarded entrance. I knew that Falmouth was there, and I knew too— if there was any discovery made, it would be communicated immediately to Downing Street. Somehow I felt sure the man was an ordinary thief, and that if we had anything to fear, it was from a chance arrest. Whilst I was waiting, a cab dashed up, and out an excited man jumped. He was obviously a policeman, and I had just time to engage a hansom when Falmouth and his new arrival came flying out. I followed them in the cab as fast as possible, without exciting the suspicion of the driver. Of course, they outdistanced us, but their destination was evident. I dismissed the cab at the corner of the street at which the police station is situated, and walked down and found, as I had suspected, the car drawn up at the door. I managed to get a fleeting glance at the charge room. I was afraid that any interrogation there might be, would have been conducted in the cell, but by the greatest of good luck they had chosen the charge room. I saw Falmouth and the policeman and the prisoner. The latter, a mean-faced, long-jawed man with shifty eyes. No, no, Leon, don't question me about the physiognomy of the man. My view was for photographic purposes. I wanted to remember him. In that second I could see the detective's anger 
the thief's defiance, and I knew that the man was saying that he could not recognize us. Ha! It was Manfred's sigh of relief that put a period to Poitard's speech. But I wanted to make sure, resumed the latter. I walked back the way I had come. Suddenly I heard the hum of the car behind me, and it passed me with another passenger. I guessed that they were taking the man back to Scotland Yard. I was content to walk back. I was curious to know what the police intended doing with their new recruit. Taking up a station that gave me a view of the entrance of the street, I waited. After a while, the man came out alone. His step was light and buoyant. A glimpse I got of his face showed me a strange blending of bewilderment and gratification. He turned onto the embankment, and I followed close behind. There was a danger that he was being shadowed by the police, too, said Gonzales. Of that I was well satisfied, Poicard rejoined. I took a very careful survey before I acted. Apparently the police were content to let him roam free. When he was abreast of the temple steps, he stopped and looked undecidedly left and right, as though he were not quite certain as to what he should do next. At that moment I came abreast of him, passed him, and then turned back, fumbling in my pockets. "'Can you oblige me with a match?' I asked. He was most affable, produced a box of matches, and invited me to help himself. I took a match, struck it, and lit my cigar, holding the match so that he could see my face. "'That was wise.' said Manfred, gravely. It showed his face, too, and out of the corner of my eye I watched him searching every feature. But there was no sign of recognition, and I began a conversation. We lingered where we had been for a while, and then, by mutual consent, we walked in the direction of Blackfriars, crossed the bridge, chatting on inconsequent subjects, the poor, the weather, the newspapers— on the other side of the bridge is a coffee stall. I determined to make my next move. I invited him to take a cup of coffee, and when the cups were placed before us, I put down a sovereign. The stallkeeper shook his head, said he could not change it. Hasn't your friend any small change, he said? It was here that the vanity of the little thief told me what I wanted to know. He drew from his pocket, with a nonchalant air, a sovereign. This is all I have got, he drawled. I found some coppers. I had to think quickly. He had told the police something, something worth paying for. What was it? It could not have been a description of ourselves, for if he had recognized us then, he would have known me when I struck the match, and when I stood there, as I did, in the full glare of the light of the coffee stall. And then a cold fear came to me. Perhaps he had recognized me and with a thief's cunning was holding me in conversation until he could get assistance to take me. Poicard paused for a moment and drew a small vial from his pocket. This he placed carefully on the table. He was as near to death then as ever he has been in his life, he said quietly. But somehow the suspicion wore away. In our walk we had passed three policemen, there was an opportunity if he had wanted it. He drank his coffee and said, I must be going home. Indeed, I said. I suppose I really ought to go home too. 
I have a lot of work to do tomorrow. He leered at me. So have I, he said with a grin. But whether I can do it or not, I don't know. We had left the coffee stall and now stopped beneath a lamp that stood at the corner of the street. I knew that I had only a few seconds to secure the information I wanted, so I played bold and led directly to the subject. What of these four just men, I asked, just as he was about to slouch away. He turned back instantly. What about them, he asked quickly. I led him on from that by gentle stages to the identity of the four. He was eager to talk about them, anxious to know what I thought, but most concerned of all about the reward. He was engrossed in the subject, and then suddenly he leaned forward, and tapping me on the chest with a grimy forefinger, he commenced to state a hypothetical case. Poicard stopped to laugh. His laugh ended in a sleepy yawn. You know the sort of questions, said he, and you know how very naive the illiterate are when they are seeking to disguise their identities by elaborate hypotheses. Well, that is the story. He, Marx is his name, thinks he may be able to recognize one of us by some extraordinary trick of memory. To enable him to do this, he has been granted freedom. Tomorrow he would search London, he said. A full day's work, laughed Manfred. Indeed, agreed Poicard soberly. But here is the sequel. We parted and I walked westward, perfectly satisfied of our security. I made for Covent Garden Market, because this is one of the places in London where a man may be seen at four o'clock in the morning without exciting suspicion. I had strolled through the market, idly watching the busy scene, when for some cause that I cannot explain, I turned suddenly on my heel and came face to face with Marx. He grinned sheepishly and recognized me with a nod of his head. He did not wait for me to ask him his business, but started in to explain his presence. I accepted his explanation easily, and for the second time that night invited him to coffee. He hesitated at first, then accepted. When the coffee was brought, he pulled it to him as far from my reach as possible. And then I knew that Mr. Marx had placed me at fault that I had underrated his intelligence, that all the time he had been unburdening himself he had recognized me. He had put me off my guard. But why? began Manfred. That is what I thought, the other answered. Why did he not have me arrested? He turned to Leon, who had been a silent listener. Tell us, Leon, why? The explanation is simple, said Gonzales quietly. Why did not Terry betray us? Cupidity, the second most potent force of civilization. He has some doubt of the reward. He may fear the honesty of the police, most criminals do. He may want witnesses. Leon walked to the wall, where his coat hung. He buttoned it thoughtfully ran his hand over his smooth chin, then pocketed the little file that stood on the table. You have slipped him, I suppose? he asked. Poicard nodded. He lives? At 700 Red Cross Street, in the borough. It is a common lodging house. 
Leon took a pencil from the table and rapidly sketched a head upon the edge of the newspaper. Like this? he asked. Poincaré examined the portrait. Yes, he said in surprise. Have you seen him? No, said Leon carelessly. But such a man would have such a head. He paused on the threshold. I think it is necessary. There was a question in his assertion. It was addressed rather to Manfred, who stood with his folded arms and knit brow, staring at the floor. For answer, Manfred extended his clenched fist. Leon saw the downturned thumb and left the room. Billy Marks was in a quandary. By the most innocent device in the world, his prey had managed to slip through his fingers. When Poicard, stopping at the polished doors of the best hotel in London, whither they had strolled, casually remarked that he would not be a moment and disappeared into the hotel, Billy was nonplussed. This was a contingency for which he was not prepared. He had followed the suspect from Blackfriars. He was almost sure that this was the man he had robbed. He might, had he wished, have called upon the first constable he met to take the man into custody. But the suspicion of the thief, the fear that he might be asked to share the reward with the man who assisted him, restrained him. And besides, it might not be the man at all, argued Billy. And yet... Poicard was a chemist, a man who found joy in unhealthy precipitates, who mixed evil-smelling drugs and distilled, filtered, carbonated, oxidized, and did all manner of things in glass tubes, to the vegetable, animal, and mineral products of the earth. Billy had left Scotland Yard to look for a man with a discolored hand. Here again, he might, had he been less fearful of treachery, have placed in the hands of the police a very valuable mark of identification. It seems a very lame excuse to urge on Billy's behalf that this cupidity alone stayed his hand when he came face to face with the man he was searching for. And yet... It was so. Then again, there was a sum in simple proportion to be worked out. If one just man was worth a thousand pounds, what was the commercial value of four? Billy was a thief with a business head. There were no waste products in his day's labor. He was not a conservative scoundrel who stuck to one branch of his profession. He would pinch a watch or snatch a till or pass snide florins with equal readiness. He was a butterfly of crime, flitting from one illicit flower to another, and nor above figuring as the X of information received, so that when Poicard disappeared within the magnificent portals of the Royal Hotel in Northumberland Avenue, Billy was hipped. He realized in a flash that his captive had gone whither he could not follow without exposing his hand, that the chances were he had gone forever. He looked up and down the street. There was no policeman in sight. In the vestibule, a porter in shirt-sleeves was polishing brasses. It was still very early, the streets were deserted, and Billy, after a few moments' hesitation, took a course that he would not have dared at a more conventional hour. He pushed open the swing doors and passed into the vestibule. 
The porter turned on him as he entered and favored him with a suspicious frown. "'What do you want?' asked he, eyeing the tattered coat of the visitor in some disfavor. "'Look here, old fellow,' began Billy, in his most conciliatory tone. Just then the porter's strong right arm caught him by the coat collar, and Billy found himself stumbling into the street. "'Outside, you!' said the porter firmly. It needed this rebuff to engender in Marks the necessary self-assurance to carry him through. Straightening his ruffled clothing, he pulled Falmouth's card from his pocket and returned to the charge with dignity. "'I am a police officer,' he said, adopting the opening that he knew so well. "'And if you interfere with me, look out, young fella!' The porter took the card and scrutinized it. "'What do you want?' he asked in more civil tones. He would have added, sir, but somehow it stuck in his throat. If the man is a detective, he argued to himself, he is very well disguised. I want that gentleman that came in before me, said Billy. The porter scratched his head. What is the number of his room? he asked. Never mind about the number of his room, said Billy rapidly. Is there any back way to this hotel? Any way a man can get out of it? I mean, besides through the front entrance. Half a dozen replied the porter. Billy groaned. "'Take me round to one of them, will you?' he asked, and the porter led the way. One of the tradesmen's entrances was from a small back street, and here it was that a street scavenger gave the information that Marx had feared. Five minutes before, a man answering to the description had walked out, turned toward the strand, and, picking up a cab in the side of the street cleaner, had driven off. Baffled, and with the added bitterness that had he played boldly, he might have secured at any rate a share of a thousand pounds, Billy walked slowly to the embankment, cursing the folly that had induced him to throw away the fortune that was in his hands. With hands thrust deep into his pockets, he trampled the weary length of the embankment, going over again and again the incidents of the night, and each time muttering a lurid condemnation of his error. It must have been an hour after he had lost Poicard that it occurred to him all was not lost. He had the man's description. He had looked at his face. He knew him feature by feature. That was something at any rate. Nay, it occurred to him that if the man was arrested through his description, he would still be entitled to the reward, or part of it. He dared not see Falmouth and tell him that he had been in company with the man all night without effecting his arrest. Falmouth would never believe him, and indeed it was curious that he should have met him. This fact struck Billy for the first time. By what strange chance had he met this man? Was it possible, the idea frightened Marx, that the man he had robbed had recognized him, and that he had deliberately sought him out with murderous intent? A cold perspiration broke out on the forehead of the thief. These men were murderers, cruel, relentless murderers. Suppose... He turned from the contemplation of the unpleasant possibilities to meet a man who was crossing the road towards him. He eyed the stranger doubtingly. The newcomer was a young-looking man, clean-shaven, with sharp features and restless blue eyes. As he came closer, Marx noted that first appearance had been deceptive. The man was not so young as he looked. 
He might have been forty, thought Marx. He approached, looked hard at Billy, then beckoned him to stop, for Billy was walking away. Is your name Marx? asked the stranger authoritatively. Yes, sir, replied the thief. Have you seen Mr. Falmouth? Not since last night, replied Marx in surprise. Then you ought to come at once to him. Where is he? At Kensington Police Station. There has been an arrest, and he wants you to identify the man. Billy's heart sank. Do I get any of the reward? he demanded. That is, if I recognize him? The other nodded, and Billy's hopes rose. You must follow me, said the newcomer. Mr. Falmouth does not wish us to be seen together. Take a first-class ticket to Kensington, and get into the next carriage to mine. Come. He turned and crossed the road toward Charing Cross, and Billy followed at a distance. He found the stranger pacing the platform, and gave no sign of recognition. A train pulled into the station, and Marx allowed his conductor through a crowd of workmen the train had discharged. He entered an empty first-class carriage, and Marx, obeying instructions, took possession of the adjoining compartment, and found himself the solitary occupant. Between Charing Cross and Westminster, Marx had time to review his position. Between the last station and St. James's Park, he invented his excuses to the detective. Between the park and Victoria, he had completed his justification for a share of the reward. Then, as the train moved into the tunnel for its five minutes' run to Sloane Square, Billy noticed a draft, and turned his head to see the stranger standing on the footboard of the swaying carriage, holding the half-opened door. Marx was startled. "'Pull up the window on your side,' ordered the man, and Billy, hypnotized by the authoritative voice, obeyed. At that moment he heard the tinkle of broken glass. He turned with an angry snarl. "'What's the game?' he demanded. For answer, the stranger swung himself clear of the door, and closing it softly, disappeared. "'What's his game?' repeated Marx drowsily. Looking down, he saw a broken vial at his feet. By the vial lay a shining sovereign. He stared stupidly at it for a moment. Then, just before the train ran into Victoria Station, he stooped to pick it up. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Four Just Men, Part 3 of 4, by Edgar Wallace. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Please become a member today. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.
When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stenge Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.